thrilling to know that uh, singing songs and praise to God is a part of the heavenly experience that uh, we're going to uh, engage in when we get to be with the Lord. Uh, the, uh, the, the participation of singing today in terms of what we do when we come together, that we may sing at other times and probably do, but when we come together and sing as a church together, I think is one of my favorite times um, and because it's so easy to bring to mind spiritual things when you're singing the words that reflect spiritual thoughts. Uh, and as we've been talking about, even in, um, uh, even in our class on Sunday morning, in, in terms of the Song of Moses, and I've been looking at some of that in preparation for teaching on that, that uh, God certainly recognizes that when you sing something, uh, when you put it uh, into a tune in your heart, it, it uh, becomes entrenched there. It becomes a way of remembering and putting things um, into your mind to sing them. And I think that's one reason why God certainly would encourage us to do that. We teach our children some of the th- even some of the more complex memory lessons by putting it in a song and having them sing it because it commits this, those things, those thoughts to our minds. Uh, and that's somewhat uh, the segue I want to use to talk about what we're going to look at in our lesson this, this evening. The collection of hymns in the Old Testament uh, is usually referred to us as the Psalms. We're an integral part of divine revelation. Uh, the, thing we fi- the word we find in the book of Psalms are as much a part of, uh, of inspired language as the book of Romans or the book of Hebrews. Uh, that David was a prophet. He wrote most of those that are there, but others that wrote the Psalms as well. Uh, are, given, are given us words that are from uh, God's own teaching. And the songs were important to the worship of the uh, Israelites. Uh, those particular words were used in corporate worship as they came together and as they assembled together in the temple. Some of the psalms are even designated as ones that were used in temple worship. They no doubt were also very personal, even as songs would be to us. Not only do we have favorite songs, but we have songs that maybe uh, were a part of a particular uh, portion of our life, and maybe songs themselves uh, bring to memory uh, things that have happened to us and help us to recall things that maybe that we would have easily forgotten. And certainly they are a part of our individual worship to God. When we look at the Psalms, and we're not going to spend time looking at all the Psalms, although I have been contemplating using the Psalms as a theme for uh, if not this coming year, maybe one of the coming years, uh, the Lord willing, because I think that there, it, there is a real value in looking at the Psalms as a whole and, and grouping them together and see how they interrelate with one another. Uh, but some of the Psalms uh, are, uh, take, of course, many of the Psalms take varied forms. They're not all exactly alike. Um, and they don't all have the same purpose, um, even as we would read them or even as they would have been sung in Israelite worship. Some of the songs are in the form of a prayer. Uh, there are songs that ask God to deliver uh, the psalmist from his enemies. Some of them we call those imprecatory psalms, where the psalmist even asks for God to punish the enemies, uh, his own enemies. Other psalms are historical narratives, uh, where in the psalm it tells the story of some event in the Old Testament, um, the history of God's people. Many of the psalms are simply words of praise. They are words of devotion, and they are designed to give thanks to God for something that's happened or something that God has provided. And so they are psalms of thanksgiving. Uh, and as we mentioned, some songs are connected to particular events uh, that we know even from the inspired notations above the psalms that there are that they were connected with a particular time of a person's life, particularly David. Uh, and I think that's important for us to recognize because knowing. When a person writes something, 
knowing this context from which he says words helps us to better not only appreciate the word, but I think to understand the, what the words express. Uh, and so the, there are some of David's songs that depict a specific time of his life. The third song, it tells us in the, in the heading of that psalm that he was fleeing from his son Absalom. In the 18th psalm, it is a psalm David wrote when he was delivered from the hands of Saul. And so it talks about God's deliverance for him. Uh, psalm 30 is a psalm of, of, of great praise uh, and devotion. It's a psalm that was written at the death time of the dedication of the temple or the house of David. And then we remember the 51st psalm. It tells us in the notation there that it was given that it was written by David uh, when Nathan the prophet approached him about his sin with Bathsheba. And we're able to go to the Bible and read that account and then read the psalm that connects with it. Uh, this evening I'd like for us to look at the... the uh, well, I don't even have it up here. Maybe I should bring it up here so we can look at it. Uh, I'd like for us to look at the 32nd Psalm. If you, want to read, if you want to turn your Bibles there, that's where we're going to spend our time this evening as we study together. The 32nd Psalm, I'm convinced, is also a song... Uh, that, uh, a psalm that connects uh, to a particular time of David's life. And the reason I would make that c- connection is because the, uh, uh, of the wording of the psalm. And there are many uh, there are others who comment on this who say that the th- 32nd Psalm and 51st Psalm uh, are somewhat um, uh, connected together in terms of being psalms of David that talk about this aspect of forgiveness and penance. Maybe 51st Psalm talks about the... Uh, the uh, uh, the experience, the emotional experience, and the 32nd Psalm, as we're going to look at, talks about the blessings that come as a result of being one who is forgiven. But the major theme of this song, and I don't know why it's not showing up here, but do I have nothing turned on? Uh, sometimes I think this thing gets tired of being on and it just goes off on its own. We'll try it again. The major theme of the song, I think, has to do with forgiveness. So I want to take a couple of minutes and look at the words. There are a lot of places in the Bible we go to talk about forgiveness, about times when people ask for forgiveness, when they are forgiven, uh, the, the more uh, uh, thematic statements of even the epistles where Paul talks about what it means to be forgiven and the blessing of the aspect of uh, how is attained to the blood of Jesus. So there's a lot in the Bible about forgiveness. What the psalm provides for us and what many psalms provide for us that may be provided nowhere else in the scriptures is that many times the psalms are opening up of the heart of the individual. That you can't really read a psalm without somewhat being emotionally involved in what the person is thinking because it is an expression of the heart. So what we find in the psalms many times are not didactic teachings, but rather expressions or what we sometimes call poetic language that that we're able to interpret and in many ways, I think, express a point even more vividly uh, than just plain old language. And so what we find, I think, in the 32nd Psalm is an expression of the heart of one who has been forgiven. Uh, It is an expression of understanding the blessing of forgiveness from the standpoint of one who has actually experienced it. Uh, The the, the divine uh, description in the heading of the psalm uh, tells us that it's a contemplation. uh, And we we have a, probably a perception of what it means to contemplate on something, uh, to think about it for a, an extended period of time. And that's what uh, I think is probably meant in this particular term, that the Hebrew term has to do with the idea of thinking uh, for the purpose of coming to a reasonable conclusion. So the idea of a contemplation is that this psalm was something that they were to sit down and meditate upon, to put some thought into. Uh, and some suggested that, that this may very well 
indicate that in terms of its usage among the Hebrews, that it was a psalm that would be used for instruction. So that when the teacher got up and was to talk about it, he would recite the psalm or have them memorize the psalm so that uh, they would be able to be instructed in didactic teaching. But I think probably the idea that we would place it is this is something that we need to seriously consider as, as I mentioned, as something that comes from someone who has experienced this aspect of forgiveness. Uh, in the 32nd Psalm, you read with me, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groanings all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, that they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You, can, you shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But if you trust in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So the psalm begins with the aspect of blessedness, uh, with the words, blessed is he. Uh, now there are several psalms that do that. Uh, the, 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 we, we think about the very first psalm, where again, that psalm starts beginning talking about uh, what, it, what the characteristics of one who is blessed, or the use of that term, who is living a fulfilled, satisfied life, who is, sometimes we use the word happy, uh, or contented, and I think those particular terms probably fit very well. So this psalm starts out by talking about what it means to be blessed. Blessed is he, you see, who is, in essence, who is forgiven. So that's why we're looking at this, and that's the way we're taking this approach, is that he starts out talking about that it's blessed to be forgiven, and who among us would not, would not agree with that? Whether we're talking about forgiveness of God or whether we're talking about the, the fact that your wife forgave you or your child forgave you uh, or the, the guy that you cut off in traffic forgave you, the idea here is forgiveness, when it's received properly, when it's given genuinely and received properly, is a wonderful blessing. So he expands this to talk about the aspect of forgiveness as it would come from God. Uh, what, what all's involved in recognizing the value of being forgiven. In verses 1 through 5... He talks about forgiveness in the context of confession and forgiveness. In the first two verses, uh, he talks about the, the fact that forgiveness comes to those to the man you see uh, who is forgiven, whose sin is covered, uh, whom the Lord will not impute righteousness, and whom his spirit there is no deceit. And so the idea of being forgiven puts a person in a position of being happy or being contented or being in a blessed position. It creates joy. And to use that word because I think the idea of blessedness and joy go together. But we've been talking about joy and some of the elements of joy. And so it fits for us to look at this in that context. That how does a person become joyful or how does he able to create joy in his life? The psalmist would say that the, the, that the person who really appreciates forgiveness and who secures forgiveness from God has the ability to be joyful. In verses 3 through 4, I believe, David accounts his own experience. And he gives the other side of that. Or at least he's going to tell us in this 
how it is that he got to the position where he could be blessed by being forgiven. When I kept silent, my bones grew old and through my groanings all the day long that God's hand was heavy upon him day and night. And so what he tells us here is that there was a time before he was forgiven when he was not joyful, when every day was misery, uh, when the, the emotional stress of the guilt of his conscience and even the physical elements of suffering under sin were evident to him every day. And so sin had robbed him of the joy of his life. Never know anybody like that who was, who was rebellious and unwilling to repent or they're unwilling to face their own sin uh, and they're living with a conscience that bothers them and they're living an unhappiness and unfulfilled unsatisfied life because they, can, they are unwilling to deal with their sin. Now, so David feels the emotional and physical pain of all of that. He says the reason that has come upon him is because he attempted to hide his transgressions. This is another reason why many suggest that this psalm is connected with his sin with Bathsheba because we're all aware that he went through a year of uh, of intriguing deceitfulness uh, to try to hide that sin. And it was only when uh, Nathan appeared to him that he was willing to face it himself. But verse 5... So his sin robs him of his joy. And then in verse 5, he, he specifically brings, brings us back to the idea of how he was able to receive this forgiveness. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. So after he says, if you, if you attempt to hide your sin, it's going to bring bad stuff in your life. You're going to suffer if you try to hide your sin. He turns around and tells us, but I acknowledge my sin. And when I acknowledge my sin and I confess my sin that he forgave me. Notice how succinctly David says it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Just that simple. He came to himself and says, I'm going to open up to God and and, and confess my sins. And when he did that, God forgave him. Sometimes we marvel at how easily, if that's the right way to determine it, to, to, to say it, but how easily God forgave David. You know, we almost expected there were. Of course, he did lose his son and all of that. But you'd almost expect that there would be, there would have, there would have been more required of him, uh, that he would have exacted a higher price, or at least the aspect of uh, of the ramifications of his sin, uh, and from a moral standpoint. But it's always like that, isn't it, in scriptures? That even the worst of sinners, so to speak, if a person comes to God in contrition and does those things that God expects him to do to receive, the implications of of the sacrifice he's forgiven uh, and God does not hold it back but that's what David presents to us here he says that if he that if he confesses his sin uh, that God will forgive him if he does not try to hide it well it's interesting that if you look at back at the first two verses uh, that the psalmist utilizes four phrases to describe the blessed man and we as rightfully so, in looking at this Hebrew poetry, we put those four those four phrases together and we, we bounce them off one another, so to speak, in the Hebrew parallelism that's there. He says, the man whose transgression is forgiven, and the words there indicate that he had a debt and now he's free from that debt, that whose sin is covered, the implication there is, and the picture is, that God is angry with him, and but now that anger has been appeased or satisfied the wrath of God is propitiated, it is covered in the use of the Old Testament term. The one whom God does not impute iniquity is blessed. And the idea there is that he's guilty, but he's not charged with the crime. The idea of impute means to put it on your account or to hold you responsible for it. 
So blessed is the man whose debt is who is debt free in terms of sin, who is whose sins are covered or atoned for. He doesn't have to worry about the wrath of God, and who's the one who does whom God does not hold accountable. He is justified in the use of New Testament terminology. He is innocent of all the charges. Now, there's a lot to be said about how that comes about, in the, from the standpoint of forgiveness, either in the Old Testament or even in, in, into the New Testament. Certainly, it has to do with the initiative of God and not ourselves. Man has never paid his sin off. It's always come by the mercy of God, and every sin is forgiven by the power and efficacy of the blood of Jesus, whether it was in Old Testament or in the New Testament. But I put those three three things together because there is a fourth one, isn't there? And that is where he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now the first three, if we look at them from the standpoint of what's being said, the first three are things that only God can do. And that is, only God can forgive sins, only God can atone for sins and, and get rid of the transgression. But when it comes down to my spirit being free from deceit, whose responsibility is that? It seems as though this last one would point to my responsibility to react to my sin in the proper way. Now, that's not to discount the fact that God's spirit cleanses our spirit and that God renews the spirit of man. He doesn't even renew his own spirit from the standpoint of forgiving the individual or changing the inward person. God does that through his spirit. But certainly what seems to be presented here is that this last one, that you cannot be deceitful in your spirit in order to receive the blessings of forgiveness would point to the honesty that must come in the aspect of confessing sin. That what the psalmist is certainly emphasizing is that before I confessed my sin, before I was honest with God, I was miserable. But now you see that I've opened myself up to God and I'm honest, I confess my sins, then there is blessedness, there is happiness, I'm forgiven. And blessed is the man, you see, who, who in his spirit doesn't find any deceit. He is honest with God. That, that's the definition, I believe, of this aspect of confession. We think about what's involved in confession. Confession is not just merely admitting that I'm a sinner or admitting that sin exists. Not just even admitting that I'm guilty of sin, but rather the aspect of confession vividly sees the repulsion of sin towards the one whom I've sinned against. So it's dishonest for me to say I'm a sinner and then slough it off. The spiritually honest thing to do is to recognize that what I've done is greatly you see, harmed God in that sense, or at least offended God in the aspect of what I've done, that God is repulsed by my sin, and that my sin is a terrible, bad thing. And so the aspect here, you see, is that that's what true confession is. I'm sure there were a lot of days in which David thought about what he'd done and the moral implications of being an adulterer and somehow rationalized it away. How could he go all that, all that time and even plan for the murder of an innocent person without somehow rationalizing the horribleness of what he'd done in the very beginning? We do it all the time, don't we? Now, maybe not to the extent of immorality, sexual immorality, but in terms of the our sins of our life, you see there is sometimes when there is deceit in our heart. Because we are trying to fool ourselves or fool others about what you see we are actually guilty of. So sin must be hated. It must be shunned. It must be, we must take on God's attitude towards sin in every way. So I believe that's what's involved here in this aspect of the first five verses of this psalm. That he's pointing out this contrast that we're going to try to keep in mind as we go through the rest of the psalm. Between the person who tries to hide his sin and the person who is honest and open and confesses his sin to God. Uh, and so we look at this aspect of the forgiveness and we recognize that the psalmist doesn't stop there. He's going to go on and talk about some implications of having, been, having now 
become one that has been forgiven of sins and looking back on what God has provided, what are the blessings of that? Well, you think about how the Bible describes forgiveness and we recognize it must be a monumental thing for God to forgive us as sinners and what we get as a result of that. Uh, to be made innocent of charges to which we are really guilty, to escape the wrath of God, to be dirty and to be made clean. Uh, the aspect that we're looking at Luke chapter 15, that to be lost and completely, you see, uh, helpless, and then to be searched out and be brought back and to be found again. And then that parable about the young boy that we're going to study, uh, that to, to be dead and be alive. That forgiveness is, in biblical language, you see, a resurrection to life again. It is starting over. The psalmist would tell us some other things about forgiveness, I believe. Uh, in verse 6, uh, he says there, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Now again, the terminology for this cause looks backward in the aspect of the cause there being the forgiveness of sins through the confession of sins. That, that's what's under consideration. That the reason a person would pray to God is because he has been forgiven. Because he has experienced this great blessing of being forgiven. And so the aspect of prayer is connected with the blessing of forgiveness in the sense that the psalmist would tell us the person who's open before God and seeks, and seeks to be forgiven and then receives that forgiveness is motivated to pray to God more. He's motivated to draw closer to God and to, be, and to speak with God. Now, don't overlook the contrast here. The contrast that we've been looking at between the person who attempts to conceal his sin, moves away from God, wants to distance himself from the judgments of God. And he's miserable. The person who's forgiven draws closer to God. And once God responds to the forgiveness, he wants to pray more to God. He wants to be drawn closer to God. And he's happy. And so those who remain silent about their sins will lose a desire to pray to God. I believe that that's one of the things we see happen many, many times when people uh, distance themselves from assemblies or they distance themselves from spiritual activity. Or they get involved in something maybe they've never been involved in before uh, that God's not pleased with. One of the first signs that that's going on in their life is they stay away from assemblies or they avoid other Christians. They avoid spiritual uh, activities. Uh, and the whole idea you see is this concealment. Rather than facing up to it and dealing with it and drawing closer to God, they go the opposite direction. So the psalmist puts it in the positive and says, if you're forgiven, that's an incentive that you will pray more. So if you want to, so if you want to be a person that prays more, then seek the forgiveness of God and confess your sins. Be open with God. Verse 7, the psalmist goes on to say, You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. So in the second half of verse 6 and then in verse 7, he pictures the protection that God offers in times of trouble. That's a common theme in the Psalms. But here again, contextually, it's tied to this aspect of the person who's been forgiven, David himself. What does God provide in the context of forgiving of his sins? He describes it as floodwaters not reaching you, that the place is being overwhelmed with water, but God holds his hand up and protects you from, what, from other things that might, you see, very well harm you. And so God protects the individual who is open and honest, who seeks forgiveness. The prophet Isaiah, I think, a couple of times mentioned this in, the, in some of the messianic uh, statements he makes about this aspect of God's, uh, God's servant. In verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah said God's purpose is, uh, in, in all his transcendence, is to make a way in which he can help.
help those who are below him, so to speak, or those you see are who are the humblest and the meekest and, uh, and the most confessing individuals among them, that God would revive the heart of the contrite ones. He goes on to say that he resists the proud and will stand against them. But in the 66th Psalm, in the 66th chapter of Isaiah, verse 1, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built me? Where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hands has made and all those things and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. So the psalmist indicates, you see, just as Isaiah indicates just as the psalmist did, that God has a particular position of protection and help to those who are humble before him. I believe that David was probably intends for us to understand the blessedness of forgiveness, blessedness of the forgiven man in the first two verses. Consists not only in, in the conscience being forgiven, uh, and also in the protection that God gives in the midst of troubles, but this aspect here that God blesses every element of a person's life. And certainly, we think about what we desire—the security of life and the protection that we have, that we need from the things that are around us. But the psalmist would tell us that the place we start seeking for that is in dealing with our individual sins now. That the person who asks for God to protect him while he continues on in sin or conceals his sin or ignores his sin, he has no hope of the protection of God. And again, the contrast we need to see is between the one who's contrite and open and the one who hides his sinfulness. When I think about that contrast and I think about seeking for God to bless us in the, in the midst of hiding our sin, I think about Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. We're studying about that some in Luke as we talk we studied about Jesus and healing on the Sabbath and all the controversy that surrounds that and his talking to them about this aspect of the nature of the kingdom by telling parables about those who were invited to a feast and they refused, but so he invited others to come in so that his house would be full. That Jesus often faced this element among men that either a person is up front with God or he's not. Uh, and the idea that the Pharisees of Jesus' day could not understand why he was spending time with sinners. When God's intention was to bless them, why was he spending time with sinners? And over and over again when that comes up, Jesus' answer focuses on the fact that these folks who I'm spending time with that you call sinners are seeking after me. It's not that I'm running off to find them and not running off to find you. They are seeking me out. And because they seek me out, God does not turn them away. And so the aspect of the promise of God's blessing will only come to those who are humble enough to seek after God and to desire what God offers. And certainly that applies to this aspect of forgiveness as well. But in verse 8, he goes on to say, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Now there's a change of pronouns in the psalm, and you may have noticed this as we go through. At times it seems as though God... That you have the third person speaking about someone else, the man who's blessed, and then uh, and then the first person uh, arrives and he's talking about I do this and I do that. And sometimes it's difficult for us to know is that God speaking or is that David speaking. Some suggest that David begins to speak here, and it's he who will instruct others because he's been forgiven. He feels motivated to go out and teach others about God, and that fits. In fact, you look at the fifty-first Psalm, and that's precisely what David says. He says to the Lord in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. So David says in the 51st Psalm, if, if you get me back on track and you restore my salvation, I'm committed to teaching others. 
so that they will not fall the same way I fall. And I think that's certainly what we could recognize in a person's life. Uh, That may be what is happening here. David's saying again, I will instruct others. Or it may be that God is doing the speaking here. And that what God is, what, what the psalmist is telling us is that one of the blessings of being forgiven is this aspect of direction. That God doesn't just forgive our sins and leave us alone. That he would desire that we not engage in that sin again, that we go a different direction, that we're able to mold our lives and give ourselves, you see, uh, some, uh, some strength to be able to overcome the, the, this particular temptation next time we come about it. And the blessing of forgiveness would be incomplete without the blessing of direction. The blessing of forgiveness would be incomplete without sanctification. Redemption would certainly not complete the process without the aspect, you see, of spiritual strengthening um, and completion. And so the blessing of forgiveness then involves this aspect that God will direct us if we will be led. And the person who comes to God and says, I've done what's wrong, I've gone the wrong direction, I've sinned against you, is a person that in terms of their heart is open up to new direction. Show me the way that I need to go. Show me how to avoid this again and to live a life that's right. Uh, and so, you, so that's important in the process. If you, if you take a person that's lost and you, and you open up a map and you show him where he is on the map, you've started the process. But if you leave him there and you don't tell him how to get out of the woods, probably not going to be very good for him. So not only you should maybe show him where he's at so that you convince him that he's lost, he's not at home, he's not where he thinks he is. But you show him out of the wood called guided navigation on my car. <laughs> it's a voice that says, you're not where you're supposed to be, turn here. And that's what God does in the Word. You're not where you're supposed to be. You need to turn. So repentance is an ongoing process in the life of the Christian. Now, in the context of telling us that forgiveness provides for uh, an incentive to draw close to God, that it provides for us this aspect of, of uh, being an individual, you see, who is protected from the, from the difficult things of life and from other threats of sin. And that when we are forgiven, God provides for us direction to be able to live a new life. In the context of that, in, in this particular psalm, uh, David takes another, takes another view, and that is this aspect of the person who will not come. He would have us go back and look again, maybe at his own life, and I'm convinced that probably is true, uh, at his own experience, and warn us that what stands in the way of the blessings of forgiveness is a stubborn spirit. And so happiness might very well be elusive to us, not because God doesn't provide a way for it, not because we can't understand how we can be blessed, but because our pride stands in the way and we will not respond. How long had David been miserable? How long had conscience beat him down, as he described in the early part of this? I believe that he's probably addressing here his own experience that he is an individual who was stubborn before God. And so he says, Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Now that's the counterpart to verse 6, where we ought to pray, come to God. There's the person who will not come to God, who refuses to come. Uh, I'm reading one author was, uh, who was commenting on this particular psalm who uh, gave the illustration of a barnyard full of animals. And the mule would be a mule, I guess. Some of you know more about mules than I do, but a mule would be included in that, an animal that you work with that 
can be very uh, can be known for its stubbornness and unwillingness to move. You have a barnyard full of animals, and you call them all in, and the dog comes, and the cow comes, maybe even the duck comes, but the mule he won't come. He's out there standing in the field. It's pouring down rain, and you're standing at the, at the door of the barn, and you wanted to come in. You wanted to come in where there'd be protection. You provide for him some blessing, but he refuses. And you go out and you grab, you try to get him to go, and you slap him on the bottom, and he won't come. So what do you have to do? Well, eventually you have to go and take a bridle and a bit and put it in his mouth, and you have to drag him in to the place where he will be more comfortable. And that that's this aspect, the picture that the psalmist is painting here, that God is leading us in the way that's best for us. He would provide for us protection and direction and provide us for the incentive to become better people than we are now if we would only humble ourselves and listen to Him and be willing to be forgiven by Him then we could have all of these blessings. But many times we are not because we are mules. We will not come unless God does something to motivate us. So that's what God did with David, isn't it? He put the bit and the bridle in David's mouth. He made him come. And I think probably we, we, don't, we don't maybe try to read too much into those type of events, but uh, they're powerful events, those stories in the Old Testament. Nathan going to David and pointing his crooked finger at him and saying, you are the man. Uh, those are powerful events to show us that God does really care about whether or not a person turns away from their sin. That he cares about whether an individual becomes humble at the right time. And David had been humble for a long time. He'd been proud and elusive and hiding his sin. But eventually, God put the bridle in David's mouth and brought him back. And so David, I think, is relating that to us and says, this is a very important characteristic of a blessed life. That you don't be like a mule. That you be an individual that's submissive and humble. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, talking about mourning for their sins, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So David would have us to understand that the alternative to this mule-like behavior is opening up to God in absolute true honesty. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groanings all the day long. Well, why do we not cherish this as we should? You know, the idea of forgiveness. I think there may be a lot of reasons, and some, no doubt, make for another lesson at another time. Pride, does, no doubt, is behind all of that. But I think as well, we're not willing to look at ourselves in the context of the horrible tragedy that sin involves us in. I don't want to see myself, not only as the guilty party, but even if I were to acknowledge that I was guilty, as I would say, everybody's a sinner, so I must be one too. That I, the idea that I'm as bad as some other people or that I'm as bad as sin really is is another leap of humility. To understand the implications of, the, of this involved when I tell a single lie, when I'm deceitful to even my mate, when I'm, when I'm willing to rationalize my sin away or lose my temper or say the wrong words. All of those things you see involve me in sin. And there is no little sin and big sin. There is simply that which is an affront to God and must be confessed. The woman in Simon's house who wet Jesus' feet with her tears and washed them is a poignant story. Why was she crying? Why was she acting so different than anybody else in the room? So much so that Simon not only noticed it, but even was willing to, in his own thoughts, rebuke Jesus for not doing something about it. She was crying because she was a sinner. 
Jesus in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Her tears were tears of reflection upon her true position before God. And her love flowed from her sense of sin and the opportunity to be forgiven. And so our love does as well. It flows from understanding how far away we are from God and how close we can be to God, all because He forgives us. And Simon sat there being oblivious to it all. He wasn't irreligious, but he certainly was not blessed in the way that the psalmist speaks about it. The last imperative, and there's that verse we were just talking about. Uh, the last imperative in the 32nd Psalm is in verse 10, I think it is, uh, where he says, Be glad and rejoice. Shout for joy. Now that fits. Here's a psalm that deals with the blessings of forgiveness and the last command of the psalm is we need to rejoice. Not just rejoice. He says, shout for joy. And the word literally means to speak it out. I'm concerned sometimes we don't shout for joy more often. I'm concerned that sometimes our emotions are subdued when it comes to spiritual things. Not because being overly emotional adds to any spirituality, but because it may be reflective of a heart that's really sort of callous to the idea of what God has done or become so accustomed to spiritual things that they don't move us anymore, even to the aspect of our own personal forgiveness. Do we understand and fully appreciate what it means for God to forgive us of our sins and put us back on track again? What the psalmist says in this particular passage is that the one who is willing to be contrite, the one who will come and shout and, 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 and shout joy for the, for the aspect of his own forgiveness is surrounded by the mercy of God. I like that terminology. He is surrounded by the mercy of God. He comes and protects the contrite heart, God does. He provides for us that which we could not provide for ourselves, not only in the spiritual level of the atonement for our sins, but by affirming to us that he always is there to forgive. And he surrounds us, not with a condemning, hateful eye, looking for us to sin. But if we're humble before him, he desires to forgive us. He surrounds us with his mercy, ever ready to say you are forgiven. Don't be a mule. Be submissive to the will of God. Be ready to come to him with a contrite heart, because that is the essence of the blessed life. Thank you for your attention tonight. I think there is so much for us to see and be able to view and appreciate in the Psalms. And this Psalm is simply one of many, many that provide for us an insight, not only into the heart of the psalmist himself, but in implications to our own lives. If you're not a Christian, we want for you to have a blessed life. We want for you what God wants for you, and that is that you would be forgiven of your sins, and you would be an individual. You see, you could shout for joy as the Ethiopian did because he now was free to serve God. If you'll do what the Ethiopian did, then you can go on your way rejoicing. If you'll repent of your sins through faith in Jesus Christ to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, you can be a Christian. Uh, And we welcome you to come do that even tonight. Let's stand and sing.